come to You. Lord, even as we sang tonight, we are so mindful of how much we need You. And Lord, we want to ask for Your grace and Your mercy upon our nation at this season, at this time. Lord, as we see so much going on in the world, wars and rumors of wars, Lord, we are, we are certain that, that we are in the, the last days. And so we would ask that you continue, Lord, to show yourself merciful, that you would continue to reach out to us as a people, to to the nation, to the lost, to the nations, that the gospel of Christ would continue to go forth. Lord, we know that's the only reason that you tarry and delay your return, is for the saving of souls. And so we would pray for your mercy. We pray for the gospel to continue to move forward and advance your kingdom, Lord, as we move closer to your return. Lord, we want to be mindful tonight of those families that would be particularly struggling now in memory of the loss that was um, experienced on the 9-11 12 years ago, Lord, and we would ask that you would be with those families. We ask, God, that you would use even this difficult time in memory as a time of spiritual sobering, spiritual enlightening, a time, God, when hearts would be turning to you. Lord, I remember the Sundays early following that the churches were filled, people turning to God. But Lord, how quickly that national sense of need of you dissipated. And we would pray that you would, Lord, continue to stir the hearts, that there would be one more yet revival, one more harvest in the land for your glory. Father, we want to thank you for your faithfulness to us here as a people, particularly the church here in Monrovia. We're grateful, Lord, for the good things that you've done. Looking back, Lord, on these eight years that we've been here, what a work you've done, what a miracle, Lord, to see how you have raised up a group of believers, a fellowship of people, your church. We would ask your continued blessing, your guidance. And Lord, we would ask now just to speak to us even from the word. So we open the scriptures together, Lord. May your word come alive in our hearts once again. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 24, continuing our study. Deuteronomy, of course, is the the second giving of the law or the restating of the law, really. Moses now giving the law to the children of Israel just prior to their going into the promised land. This is the new generation that has kind of been uh, grown up in in the wilderness. They've been in the wilderness 40 years, and now Moses is about ready to hand off the ministry to Joseph, but he now states the law and makes it fresh again in the hearts of the children before they go to take the land. So we'll see as we work through, and as we've been working through, just a lot of uh, various laws, a verse here, a verse there, kind of just uh, bouncing through. We'll take our time to look at these verses tonight and discuss them as we go. Notice with me now, first here in these first number of verses, we see uh, Moses again speaking concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Chapter 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house... When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, 
Or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So this certificate of divorce, uh, this permissive divorce that God uh, allowed Moses to instruct uh, the people. Now you notice that he said, if, if the husband should find some uncleanness in her, then he might give her a certificate of divorce. Now there's been a lot of speculation about what that uncleanness means specifically. And in fact, the Jewish rabbis have debated this. And even in Jesus' day, this was a hotly debated topic. Some of the rabbis had actually determined that uncleanness, if you find some uncleanness in your wife, it could be something as trivial as her uh, burning your breakfast. And you could give her a certificate of divorce. In fact, you could divorce her for just about any reason you wanted. And then other rabbis said, no, 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 that uncleanness does not mean that. In fact, it would mean something much more serious, more like some kind of immorality or unfaithfulness in the marriage. And so this was debated even in Jesus' day. And they came uh, testing Jesus. And I want us to hold your place and turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. We'll be back to Deuteronomy, but let's look to Matthew 19. We want to see Jesus' commentary on this very passage. I just like to get breakfast, let alone have it burnt. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's hard to burn a bowl of Cheerios. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm teasing. Um, Okay, Matthew 19, verse 3. Pick it up with me in verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him. So this was a test. They were trying to kind of put him in the middle of this debate. And saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his wife and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So they ask him this question, and he falls in their mind right into the trap. Aha, we've got him now. He said that God created them male and female to be joined together forever, one man, one woman, joined for life. This is God's plan. This is what God has instituted from the beginning. And so now they're going to pop the trick question on him. Now that they believe they've got Jesus cornered, verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And they're, of course, referencing Deuteronomy chapter 24. So now Jesus responds. Verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. 
But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus would answer that and say some are called to that, but certainly some are not. But Jesus now gives us a little better insight on what this uncleanness means. He said, listen, first of all, the only reason that a certificate of divorce was even permitted was because of hardness of heart. It was not what God intended. It's not God's design. It's not God's desire. His desire, Jesus states very clearly, quoting from Genesis, in the beginning, He made them male and female. You might think that to be fairly obvious, but in today's time, we have to actually describe this. No, this is what God intended. Male and female. They would come together and be joined. What God has joined, let not man separate. God is actually involved in the union of a husband and a wife. Something spiritual taking place to becoming one. Jesus said this is the plan, not for divorce, not that it would be uh, ripped apart in a divorce. And then they said, well, why then the certificate? Jesus said, because of hardness of heart. But he says, I say to you that unless it's because of sexual immorality, that it's not something that God really authorizes in divorce. Now, even in the case of sexual immorality, God can restore a marriage. It is not mandated that one divorce in the case of sexual immorality, but it is permitted. So this husband finding something unclean in his wife, I think Jesus gives us a clear understanding of what this uncleanness means. That which would be defiling the marriage, some type of sexual immorality. And of course, it's not just the wife, it's the husband as well. And so this principle would would go both for husband and wife. But even still, the divorce, the certificate of divorce, is because of hardness of heart. There are times when, even in cases of sexual immorality, that a marriage can be restored. If if the offending party is repentive and sincere and comes to God and comes back to the marriage, we've seen God work beautiful restorations in marriages, and that's the testimony of God's grace. Even in a troubled marriage, God can save a marriage. But divorce so often really ultimately is the result of a hardness of heart on both or maybe even just one one party. But Jesus clearly defining what's being mentioned here in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let's go back there now and move on. We notice there that he said, If in the case of a certificate of divorce, if the woman goes and is divorced again, she's not to go back to her first Husband. Now remember, this is a law written to ancient Israel. This is what God desired within that nation. And the purpose of this law seems to be to prevent frivolous divorce. In other words, well, if, I, if you divorce me, I'll go back to my old husband. Well, maybe he'll divorce you again and you can come back here. And it was to present divorce itself in a despairing light. It was not to be something taken lightly. I like what David Guzik says on this. this he says, this command is made because God wanted both marriage and divorce to be seen as serious, permanent things. One couldn't be married or divorced casually. It had to be carefully thought out because it was intended by God to be permanent. 
Now to look on with me now in verse 5. Something else here about marriage that is included here. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So, newlyweds. A husband was not to then go out immediately and serve on the battlefield. He was to be relieved from that type of duty or service, some other civil service. He was relieved from those obligations in order to please his wife, in order to enjoy that first year of marriage, lest he go out right after marriage and something happened to him and neither he nor his wife able to really enjoy the fruits of their coming together in marriage. But I like what what is said here, that he might bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Man, that's our call, is to bring happiness to our wives. And, you know, the Scripture has a lot to say about keeping our wives happy. Uh, The Scripture has a lot to say about the blessing that comes into a home when a wife is happy. It also has something to say about a home when the wife is not happy. And I remind you of some verses, Proverbs 27:15, "A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike." So man, it's up to you. Make your wives happy. Proverbs 21:9, "Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman." Proverbs 21:19, "Better to dwell in the wilderness." than with a contentious and angry woman. Right out of the Bible, guys. (laughs) You know the saying, right? Happy wife, happy life, right? Well, the Scriptures give us some instruction, man, as well. And I want to quote a couple of verses to you. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, we're instructed, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. So husbands, go home and make your wives happy. That's the instruction in Deuteronomy. Don't don't go out to war. Don't get engaged in uh, something that would distract you from coming home and starting to make a home with your wife by blessing and loving your wife. And this carries all into the New Testament as well. We're to love our wives in the same way that we would love ourselves. No one hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. And so wives should be loved. They should be nourished. They should be cherished. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands are called to dwell with our wives in an understanding way. It says to give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Now, this weaker vessel that Peter mentions, I mean, I think certainly we would say, well, physically, women are typically weaker than men. And so there would be an honor that a man would give to a woman because she's physically weaker. This is why men open doors for women. This is why men allow the, woman, the women to sit while they stand. This, if you're on the bus and a woman walks in and you're seated, you stand and you let the woman sit. You honor the weaker vessel. We give, we give place to that even in society. You see that, that women and children are given special preference and care because they're weaker. 
They're more fragile. They're tender. And so a husband is to treat his wife with that kind of respect, not in a condescending way, but in an honoring way. And to dwell with our wives in that kind of understanding. And Peter says, listen, lest your prayers be hindered. So it's not, it's not good for men to be dwelling with their wives in a non-understanding way, mistreating the marriage, and then coming to God and praying and looking for you know, spiritual things to come your way. Peter said, no, you, you better be right with your wife so that your prayer life will be fruitful, that even your spiritual life is affected by the way that we live in our homes together. I'm picking on the men here a little bit because that's what Deuteronomy clearly calls out. Husbands, go home and bring happiness to your wife. And I think that's a responsibility for the man. Well, back to Deuteronomy. Let's look on now at some other various laws. And again, I'll just move some through some of these quickly, just commenting. Some of them are self-explanatory. Verse 6, No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in a pledge. So you're going to see this throughout now, some of these passages, this idea of taking a pledge. What's happening is you may have to loan your neighbor something. Uh, you know, Maybe he needs some grain to get through the winter, and so you loan them some of your resource, and you would take something in pledge, something in collateral, to make sure that you get paid back. Now we know, the Scripture's already showed us here in Deuteronomy, you're not to charge them interest, but it is okay to take a pledge, to take something in collateral that establishes the agreement between the two of you. So we see here through the Scriptures, there are certain things that you're not to take as a pledge. One of the first things here, don't take the millstone, because the millstone is what they needed to grind their own flour and make their own living. So if you take that in pledge then you've crippled the family, you've crippled the household. They can't take care of themselves. So there's just some practical things here that the Lord is giving them. You can take a pledge, but don't take the millstone. Verse 7, if a man is kidnapping, excuse me, if a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die and you shall put away the evil from among you. Kidnapping was a capital crime. Verse 8, Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. So there was a quarantine if an outbreak of leprosy. And God, remember Miriam, even when she temporarily broke out with leprosy, God did heal her, but she was still quarantined outside the camp. God's saying, don't, uh, don't forget to, to follow these rules concerning leprosy. Verse 10, when you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. So just some decency here, even in the lending. Uh, You want a pledge, you don't get to go into the guy's house and pick out what you want as pledge. You wait outside and he'll bring something out to you as a pledge. And you're not to take something if he's poor, specifically the garment, that's a garment that he may need to keep warm through the night. So you're not to keep that overnight. 
So God just giving some practical uh, uh, advice here to the nation. And you see the care for one another, the decency for one another. Even if someone is poor, you don't take advantage of that. You don't uh, pervert justice in any way. Look at verse 14. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. So there's used to pay the, the, the poor immediately. Don't say, well, I'll pay you next week. He needs that for his living. So in that case, you pay him immediately. And notice what he says, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. God is listening to the prayers of those poor that are crying out to him. And he will avenge those that cry out to him. Verse 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Uh, there is no sin that passes from the father down to the child, nor is there sin that, that the child commits that is then imputed to the father. You stand accountable for your own sin. Now we know just socially certain behaviors in a household will tend to produce that kind of sinful pattern that can get passed on, but in terms of how God is viewing a man's sin, you're only accountable for those things that you commit, not the father or the son, for the, for the parent or for the child. Justice for the stranger, orphans, and widows. Look with me, verse 17. You shall not pervert justice to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and from the Lord your God, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. You need to be careful for the stranger, the, the orphan, and the widow, and remember that you were once uh, a slave in Egypt, and God was gracious and merciful to you. Uh, verse 19, this is a, a gleaning that's left for the poor. Uh, when you reap your harvest in your field, and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you, in all the work of your hands. So you don't go back through and pick every last uh, bit of your crop. Verse 20, when you beat your olive trees, so this is how they would gather the, the olives, they would shake them. You shall not go over the bows again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. So this, is, this was something of the Lord's welfare plan for the poor in the nation. You would go through and you would pick the ripe fruits out of the orchard or out of the vineyard. And some of the fruit would not yet be ripe and you wouldn't pick it. Well, you wouldn't go back and get it and make sure you get every last bit out of that, that field. You would harvest it once, and then you would leave the gleaning for the poor. This would give them a chance to also go out and work for their own food. They would then go and gather themselves, but it also gives a provision, something for them to actually survive on. So God uh, instituting this into the nation. And we see again, he reminds them, remember, you were once a slave in Egypt. This chapter, a couple things just kind of stood out to me in summary. 
uh, one, this uh, we clearly see the Lord kind of holding us accountable, uh, at least the nation of Israel, holding them accountable to the way they treated one another within the nation. You kind of hear the warnings. Be careful how you treat the the fatherless, the, the widow, the stranger. Don't take advantage just because you can. Just because you happen to be in a better social status than them. Don't abuse that privilege. Be careful because you're ultimately accountable to God. You may be able to take advantage of, uh, of a widow and, and she has no voice. She has no real recourse. But God will take recourse and God wants you to be accountable ultimately to him. You see that throughout the passages here. He said, listen, it shall be righteousness to you when you care for them. It shall be sin to you if you take advantage of them. Now, I wanna, I'm going to spend a little bit of time in some more verses in Matthew. Um, I'll, you don't have to turn to this first passage. Uh, well, let's go ahead and turn. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 6. Hold your place in Deuteronomy. We'll see what we have time for if we can get into chapter 25. But I want to just talk about this whole idea of um, being accountable ultimately to the Lord. That how you treat the stranger, how you treat the widow, the orphan, God sees these things, and God is mindful of these things. And he's telling this to the people of Israel, but he also tells us in the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 and verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward, will himself reward you openly. So, Jesus also letting his followers know that your deeds both good and bad, are ultimately seen and recorded by God. And so even even if you do take care of the widow and the orphan, don't do it in such a way that somehow gets, gains you notice and recognition by men. If, if God gives you an opportunity to bless someone or you have opportunity to serve in some capacity, to minister in some capacity, don't look for it to become, you know, who's watching, who, you know, I hope everyone noticed what I, what I just did. Did you see that? You know, are you, are you watching? You know, I, I like to do that whenever I do something handy around the house. I definitely want my wife to know, honey, did you notice? Did you see that? You know, and then I'll usually remind her several days later, aren't you enjoying the way that door's opening now? Aren't, aren't you thankful that I was able to, you know, and so I, you know, that's little silly things, but that's the way we are. We, we like to be recognized. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, ultimately everything that you do is before the Lord. And God is a good bookkeeper. He will reward you. Nothing done for the Lord goes unnoticed or unrewarded. I mean, that is such a a neat promise. Jesus would say that even a cup of water given in my name will 
will have its reward. So, But he said, listen, if you do it and sound a trumpet and make a big deal out of it and men come and say, wow, aren't you awesome? How great that was. That's your reward. Jesus said, enjoy it because that's all you're getting. I would rather do it in secret and then let the Lord reward me and uh, have what He ultimately has for us. And this is not only true in our rewarding, but you know, clearly He is also the avenger of those that take advantage, of those that are taken advantage. So be mindful that ultimately we are accountable to the Lord in the way we treat one another. And you know, sometimes somebody just, they don't necessarily rank or rate in your, you know, meter of importance and maybe you, you might take advantage of them or you might treat them poorly. You know, I think even as Christians, even when we're in a restaurant, you know, and, and someone is, you know, there's somebody there waiting on, on the table, you know, that we would not, you know, that's their job and that's what I'm paying for. That's true. And, you know, it's rare to find good service these days. But how we want to still be, you know, not, we're not better than anybody else. That we would bless them, that we would be kind to them, that we would be courteous to them. You know, those that uh, may, you know, service, you know, different areas. You know, you have somebody that comes and uh, helps service something at your home. You know, don't treat them like some, you know, hired servant, you know. Uh, treat them with respect. Treat them with, you know, care. And that, that's what you see here in, the, in Deuteronomy. Just show some respect, some decency, even if you do have to lend, and even in your taking of a pledge. Do it in a way that doesn't embarrass and humiliate one another. Show a kind of a, a grace to one another. If you're an employer and you have employees, show grace. Now, I'm not saying that you, 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 you know, let people not do their job. You don't hold them accountable. But we can still do it in a respectful and uh, in an honest way and not take advantage of our position, not take advantage of anything that, that you might be able to and nobody who would know and who, who, what could they do? Nothing. Well, God, if they cry out to God, Deuteronomy said, it will be sin to you. So we want to treat one another, I think, with that kind of respect because ultimately our accountability is to the Lord. And the other thing that we see, uh, another back in Deuteronomy, another phrase that seems to be coming quite often, is this remembering that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And it relates to these passages where God is calling the children of Israel to have a certain empathy, a certain um, sympathy, a certain tenderness toward the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that you would be merciful and, and gracious. And I would, I would turn your attention now to Matthew chapter 18. I'd like you to look there with me, some more teaching from Jesus on this being merciful, being having empathy for your brothers and sisters, especially in the Lord. Remember, you were once a slave in Egypt. Remember, you were once one needing grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. And this is what Christ teaches in Matthew 18. Pick it up with me in verse 21. Matthew 18, 21. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall a brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. He probably thought he was being pretty generous with seven. In verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. 
And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And I was like probably millions of dollars. A talent was like you know, quite a bit of weight, 60 pounds in gold. 10,000 talents he owed him. Verse 25, But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii was just a Roman coin. And he he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Jesus gives this parable, this story, to illustrate the principle that is really being discussed back in Deuteronomy 24. Remember, you were a slave in Egypt. Remember, there was a time when someone was taking advantage of you when you were in bondage, when you were poor, when you were broken, and you needed help, and I delivered you, I came and I rescued you, and I brought you out with a strong hand, not by anything that you did, not by anything that you deserved, but by my love and my grace and my promise, how I rescued you, how I saved your life in Egypt. Remember what God has done for you. This becomes the empowerment to do for others. And Jesus is giving this illustration here, and of course it applies to all of us. Who among us has not needed the grace and the mercy of God in our lives? Which one of us could stand before God today in our own righteousness? Yeah, but you don't know what this guy has done. Yeah, you don't know this person's history. Well, remember you were once a slave in Egypt. Remember, you were once in bondage to sin. Remember, you were once lost and without hope. But the Lord was merciful to you. The Lord was gracious to you. The Lord brought Jesus to the cross on your behalf, and He brought the message of the gospel to your ears. And you received it. And what did He do when you put your faith in Jesus? He forgave you all your sins. Did you deserve it? Did you earn it? You didn't deserve it. It was given to you by grace the goodness, the kindness of God. Remember that you were once a slave in Egypt. This is something that he repeats through these passages. Children of Israel, don't forget the goodness of God in your life. Because otherwise it would be so easy for you to not show goodness to one another. Be merciful, be patient. Jesus tells Peter 70 times 7. You've been forgiven much, now you be a forgiver of much. This this gracious, this empathy for one another, this willingness 
to walk in forgiveness. Turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter, now we're at chapter 25. Just a few more minutes here and I'll close. I don't know if we'll get through the whole chapter, but. Picking it up now in chapter 25, verse 1. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him and no more lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. So even in judgment, even in discipline, the Lord sets limits, and the Lord is wanting to uh, maintain the integrity of a brother even when he's punished. That 40 blows and no more. You'll remember Paul, the apostle, it's, he said in Second uh, Corinthians 11.24, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. The Jews were careful to do just one less than 40, just to be sure they didn't lose count. They were trying to obey this law, not go over 40, so they would just do 39, not get too close to the limit. But Paul would say for his punishment, they, they were inflicting this kind of punishment on him, of course, for the gospel but God wanting to limit even the discipline amongst his nation, that it would be done uh, justly, that there would be discipline, but that it would not be done over, you know, uh, too strongly. Verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Uh, The Apostle Paul would actually quote this verse in a couple of different passages in the New Testament. Uh, When the ox treading the grain, so the way they would um, kind of, Uh, get the wheat to give up its grain, uh, they would have oxen kind of walk over the top of it. This would tread out the grain, separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, You know, when you go to India, uh, a lot of times what they do, the ladies, they bring the the, uh, wheat and they put it out on the road. And they they just let the traffic drive over it. That's the way they separate uh, the wheat from the chaff. And then at the end of the day, they go and it's kind of been treaded out. So, and, and the ox would do this in the old in, in, in Israel here, the Old Testament. They would they would trample this weed, and that this is how they would thresh it out. But you would not muzzle him. He would be able to go ahead and eat some of that grain while he was working. Not to muzzle him, he would be able to enjoy some of the fruit of his labor. So, God giving some practical advice, even to the for the animal's sake. But the Apostle Paul would pick up on this and say, you know, God didn't just care about the animals. He was also ministering something of a principle that uh, a a laborer is worthy of his hire. I'll give you, you don't need to turn to these. Let me just give you a couple of the New Testament quotes. 1 Timothy 5.17, the Apostle Paul says this, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. He would also use it in 1 Corinthians 9, 
Verse 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. It is oxen. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does He say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written, That he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material thing. So uh, the Apostle Paul would use this principle even in the New Testament saying, look, those who minister and teach and labor in the gospel and the work of the ministry, uh, they're worthy of support from those that they minister to, just as the ox is able to enjoy the fruit of his work. Uh, Look with me now in verse 5 through 10. A law concerning surviving brothers. Uh, If brothers dwell together... And one of them dies and has no son. The widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But, okay, so... This was uh, this is the way God would preserve a lineage within a family. If a brother died, then the surviving brother would then have relations with his sister-in-law, and she would then have a child, which would then be given the name of the deceased brother. This is just a practical way that God was uh, carrying on a li- carrying on the lineage through the nation. God, very important in the mind of God, the the lineage for His people. This would be the lineage that ultimately the Messiah would come. And so God giving some care that families would not be lost, and that the name of a family would not be lost if someone died before he had opportunity to bear a son. So this was a practical law that God instituted. But it wasn't mandatory. And look with me in verse 7. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife... Then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. So there was a little bit of incentive here. He's going to go through some shame if he doesn't want to do that. I'm not interested in performing that duty. Well, then she had the right to bring you before the elders of the city. Verse 8. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him, try to persuade him, But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. How would you like to live with that hanging over your head? The house of one who had his sandal removed. So, God not forcing this situation, but really incentivizing. (laughs) Uh, The idea here is that, look, you're you're trying to preserve a name and a lineage for your brother. Um, This seems, you know, completely impractical, of course, in our day and our time, and it would be. And this this is something that God was doing in ancient Israel. Not something that's practiced today, but the point of it was God trying to preserve a lineage, trying to preserve a family, and that a brother should care enough for his brother 
to honor this duty on behalf of his brother. If he wouldn't, well, then he has to bear the shame of that, and people will know that you were unwilling to uh, you know, help sustain your brother's name. So, just again, some kind of uh, strange laws here, not necessarily um, practical for us today, but certainly uh, you get the spirit of what God is trying to preserve. Now, this next section is uh, even a little more strange, but let's take a look at it. I hate to end on this stuff, but but take a look. (laughs) Verse 11. If two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut off her hand, your eye shall not pity her. So apparently this was something that had to be dealt with. (laughs) Um, Again, most likely, God is uh, trying to preserve a lineage. And so this, uh, you know, a woman needs to be careful not to, uh, you know, stop a man's ability to pass on a lineage. So God just, there's for some reason, this was a very special crime in Israel, and God does not want it done uh, lightly. Okay. That's, uh, that's the tough stuff. Let's, we can't end there. We just have to keep going a little bit further. Verse 13. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. So this is the way you would trade for flour and grain. It would be by weights. And you were not to have false weights. You know, here's a pound, but really it's only, you know, 14 ounces. And you just shave it a little bit because you've got an unjust weight. God's saying, listen, make your dealings one another fairly. Deal with integrity. Don't cut corners. Don't shave just a little. Oh, they'll never miss it. Oh, it's not that big a deal. No, the Lord said you shall have a perfect and just weight. uh, Because then your days will be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God has given you. God will bless you. If you'll be just, if you'll be fair, then the Lord will take care of you and bless you. All right, let's finish up chapter 25 here tonight, and then we'll close. Verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. God calling a special remembrance to the Amalekites who abused Israel, took advantage of them when they were wandering in the wilderness, attacked them from the flanks and the rear, trying to you know, uh, destroy them, uh, get them in the weak spots. You may remember that's when... Uh, Joseph raised up an army and went to battle. Moses went up on the mountain and interceded. Remember, he lifted his hands in prayer. And so long as his hands were lifted in prayer, uh, excuse me, I said Joseph, I meant Joshua. Joshua and the, the, the children of Israel were winning the victory. But as the battle went on, as the day grew longer, Moses' hands began to get weary and he couldn't hold them up. And as, as his hands went down, then the Amalekites began to win the battle. 
And so Aaron and Hur, remember they stood on either side and lifted Moses' hand so that he could continue to intercede through the day, and Joshua was given the victory. But God never forgot how the Amalekites took advantage, and God would call them to remembrance here. Saul would get into trouble in his kingdom because he refused to obey the Lord in executing uh, the Amalekite king. Haman, uh, the, the one who tried to destroy the Jews in the time of Esther, he was an Amalekite. So God was looking even into future generations that this Amalekite strife would threaten the Jewish nation even in generations to come. And God said, listen, these guys are out to get you. You don't, you don't have any mercy on them. Do not align yourself with them in any way. A lot of commentators see this: the Amalekites as kind of a type of the flesh. You can't compromise with the flesh, right? A life in the Spirit has to be lived by putting the flesh to death. Galatians 5.24, those who are, are, are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You don't make little compromises with your flesh. You put it to death. You crucify it. Hebrews 12.1, and I'll close with this verse. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Don't compromise with sin. Don't, don't accommodate the flesh. God's saying, don't accommodate the Amalekites. They are out to kill and destroy you. And just as the flesh will ultimately uh, reap destruction in the believer's life, you can't accommodate those deeds. Put them aside. Lay aside those sins which so easily ensnare you. And uh, certainly that... That instruction is valid concerning the spirit and the flesh. All right. I'm going to close us now in prayer, and uh, then we'll just close in a song of worship. Father, we thank you for this time and your word. Uh, Lord, as we work our way through Deuteronomy, Lord, some of these laws, of course, being very um, specific to the nation of Israel. And we're taking our time, Lord, just to look at all of it. Some of it clearly not applicable to us, but certainly the principles of your word do stand out to us. Lord, that's my prayer, that as we read through the word, every jot, every tittle, Lord, that we take our time with these passages, uh, that we will begin to see something of your character, something of your nature, something of your heart in the way that you would like your people to treat one another, in the way that you want your people to reverence you and your word, and that these principles would, Lord, find good fruit in our lives, bear good fruit in our lives as well. And tonight, clearly, Lord, we do see some good principles. We see principles concerning marriage. We see some principles, Lord, uh, concerning accountability before you, who sees and knows even those secret things that are done, both good and bad. And, Lord, we see also a call to be merciful, to be long-suffering with one another because we were once slaves in Egypt. Lord, we were once lost and without hope, but you saved us and you were good to us, Lord, and you continue to be very merciful to us. And Lord, may may that be something of a motivator in our hearts, the way that we treat one another. Having received, Lord, may we now give. Having been blessed by your grace and your mercy, may we be merciful. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. So, Lord, teach us these principles even as we 
find them, discover them in the Old Testament. These speak of Christ. They speak of the principles that Jesus Himself taught. As our heads are bowed here tonight and just closing in prayer, I, I do want to give an opportunity if you're here tonight and you need to receive or respond to the Lord. We're talking about the Lord's mercy in our lives tonight, talking about Jesus Christ and His forgiveness and what He's done for us at the cross. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never received the Lord as your personal Savior. You've never really asked Him to forgive you and to cleanse you of your sin and invite Him into your life. I'd love to pray for you. Jesus loves you. He wants to show you that mercy. Maybe you need to rededicate, recommit your life to Him. You know Him. You, you've, maybe you've even walked with Him at one season in your life. But tonight, today, you need to come back to the Lord. You need to come back to His goodness and His mercy. I'd love to pray for you as well. So if you're here tonight... You need the Lord Jesus, either for the first time or you need to rededicate, recommit your life to Him. And you just please raise your hand where you're seated and I'll pray for you. Anybody here tonight? God bless you. Anyone else? The Lord speaking to your heart. You need His touch tonight. You need His mercy, His forgiveness. You need to come to Him. You need to come back to Him. Just before I pray for this gentleman, anybody else? So Lord, we do thank you for this heart tonight, God. And the Bible says that even when one sinner turns and repents and comes to faith in Christ, that all of heaven rejoices. And so Lord, we rejoice tonight with this one individual who's saying in his heart, Jesus, I need you. Maybe, need, maybe it's the first time, maybe it's coming back to you. But Lord, I pray that you would meet this heart tonight. Lord, we would simply ask you to forgive and cleanse of sin. We put our faith and trust in Jesus and His work at the cross. And God, that you would flood this heart with your love and your mercy and your grace. And that you would come into His heart by your Spirit. And just refresh and renew Him, Lord. We become a new creature in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.